Mark chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. I'm reading from the New International Version. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What's at stake in this passage for us? First, I want to talk about the structure of the story. And uh, that's going to somehow dictate the way we talk about it. So what Mark has done here is he's framed a larger story and placed something in the middle. So Jesus' family decides to go to him because they think that he's out of his mind. And then at the end, in the last section I read, they finally arrive and the interaction occurs. So we sort of have Jesus' family framing the story and then something happens in the middle that's supposed to help us understand what's outside. In, in technical language, this is called a chiastic structure. But because of that, we're going to sort of start on the outside and work our way to the middle. So that just help you understand how I'm organizing the sermon today. So I have four inquiries, four questions I want to ask of this narrative, and I hope through that interrogation we'll get at the heart of what Mark is trying to tell us is happening in the ministry of Jesus at this point. So the first question is, who were Jesus' challengers? Second, what was the challenge that they faced? Not the challenge Jesus faced, but what was the challenge that those who came to listen to Jesus faced when they had to decide who he was and how they should respond to him? What was the challenge they faced? And then based on that challenge, what were the choices that were before them? And then finally, what are the consequences, according to Jesus, of all that's at stake in this story? So we're going to begin with the question, who were Jesus' challengers? And we find that uh, the, the group I want to start with is actually somewhere in the middle of this sandwich, and it's these teachers of the law. Now, Jesus has been having confrontation with Jewish leaders and authorities throughout the gospel to this point. Oftentimes they're mentioned as Pharisees or Herodians, sometimes teachers of the law. But there's a reason that teachers of the law are put on display here. And it's because the principal problem that they're facing with Jesus comes from the law. There's something in the law of Moses that is causing a problem for Jesus' hearers and leading to the conclusion that he's either out of his mind or possessed by the chief of demons. We'll try to understand that. But the other group that comes, and this is the first time we've met Jesus' family, 
Have you, in the Gospel of Mark, there's no nativity story, so we're not told the story of how the angel came to Mary or Joseph. We're not told that they went to Bethlehem. We're not told about the miracle of Jesus' birth. We're not introduced to anybody from his family. We're introduced to John the Baptist, but in Mark's telling, he never tells us that they're cousins. So as far as we know, Jesus just appears in the Gospel of Mark and gets baptized and then begins his ministry and starts calling disciples. So we've never met his family before in the gospel according to Mark until now. But for Mark, the arrival of Jesus' family has at least two consequences. The first is that it substantiates Jesus' opponents' concerns about him. But the second thing, and I want to spend a little time on this, that the arrival of Jesus' family allows to happen in the story is it allows Jesus to redefine family in the most radical ways imaginable. You notice what he says there at the end of the passage we read together? Jesus' mom and brothers arrived, and they sent someone to call to him. Because remember, he's in this home, and he's so surrounded he couldn't even eat, we were told at the beginning. And so the crowd is around him. They ask him to be brought out to them. And Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In the world of the first century, the family was everything. It was oftentimes your place of employment. It was your means of security, social security. No government was going to pay for you when you got old or care for you. Your family did that. When you were young, it was your parents who cared for you. The redistribution of wealth that we talk so much about in our culture, how do you get wealth from those who have it to those who don't? It was passed down in families in the first century. And so the parents were guardians of whatever they had, and they passed it down to their children. If you cut yourself off from your family, you lost everything. Your inheritance, oftentimes your livelihood, certainly the place where you lived, and any access to the material wealth of the time. Huge. The family was everything. Jesus redefines family and says, whoever we are by birth is somehow less important than who we are through Christ. When Jesus' family comes in the first century, the expectation, and since Jesus is the eldest brother if they are brothers, or he's the head of household if they're cousins, because he's the firstborn of Mary and Joseph, and his family comes and asks for him to come outside, the respectful, the honorable thing to do would have been Jesus to leave the party, go out and have this conversation in private with his family. Even if he had to criticize them, he should have done it in private. It should have been done respectfully. But instead, Jesus, in front of everybody, disowns his family. Who are my mother and brothers? Only those who do the will of my Father. So it's important in this scene that the teachers of the law are there. We're going to get to that because they focus our attention on a problem in the law. But it's important also that Jesus' family has come, and when they first come, they are not disciples. They are not people persuaded that Jesus is doing the right thing. And they want to talk to him about it. They want a private audience, which he refuses to give. Again, only giving that audience to his 12 disciples. Those are the challengers. Now, here's the challenge. 
What's the problem with Jesus? A problem so intense that it even is holding up his family temporarily. Now, it doesn't forever. We know that Jesus' brother James eventually comes to lead the church in Jerusalem, and he writes the book of James. Jesus' brother Judas writes the book of Jude. So eventually, and of course Mary is there at the cross, and she's there through most. She seems to be the source of all Luke's material in the gospel. So we know that Jesus' family comes around, but what's the problem initially for them? I think it comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Can you see Jesus in that? Here he is, self-declared prophet, doing signs and miracles. But is he telling us to disobey the law? Because if he's telling us to disobey the law, then he's telling us to disobey God, which means he's trying to encourage us to go against the God of Israel. So who is Jesus? He's not accused of being some run-of-the-mill demoniac. He's not accused of being some run-of-the-mill crazy person. There's something else there. In fact, it seems to me Jesus' family, recognizing the danger of some of the things he was saying, are coming to his aid. And I suspect that saying he was out of his mind might be a protection. But the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they never thought that of Jesus. They never thought he was a crazy person. We don't see that accusation anywhere, not here, nor in the Jewish writings that follow afterwards. Jesus' clarity and his certainty and his power put them in a different place of decision. It was the decision for them whether Jesus was a prophet from God or if he was sent by God as a test of Israel's loyalty. Was Jesus a test to see how faithful to the Torah they would be? Or was he truly a prophet? This is the decision they are being forced to make. And it's no small decision. They had a lot of stories in their Bible that highlighted the fact of needing to be discriminating in that choice. They have to figure out, is he with us in the law, or is he against us trying to lead us away from God? So the challengers are the teachers of the law and Jesus' own family. And the challenge that's posed is this question of whether Jesus is a test or a prophet. And that drives them to have a few choices with respect to Jesus. The first is this. Maybe Jesus let things get a little out of hand. You know, he, he made the case a little too hard. He wasn't quite thinking. And so he's just a young man that let things get out of control. His family says he's a little out of his mind. Let us take us home. We'll square him up. It'll all be fine. 
The second option is that Jesus is in complete control of his faculties. In fact, he is in the control of Satan himself, sent to test the loyalty of Israel. And so he looks powerful, but it's a deception meant to lead Israel away from God. Is he a test? And the third option they have is that Jesus has in fact been sent by God, and he is in fact assaulting the spiritual forces of evil that have imprisoned the people of Israel. These are our three options. And Jesus insisted that his behavior should be testimony to the truth of who he was. And he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? Now, in some ways, you know, we live in a very deceptive time, right? I probably wouldn't put it past any, anybody to make it look like they were on my side before they stabbed me in the back, right? So it probably wouldn't put it past Satan to cast out a few demons, to make it look like he was on the side of Israel, and then once they fell and, and betrayed God, he could go, ha, 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 gotcha. But Jesus insists that would be a dumb move and Satan's not that stupid. Why? What Jesus is insisting is once your people realize that you are willing to kill anyone to achieve your ends, they will revolt. These demons are being slaughtered by Jesus in the sense that they're being cast out. They're being thrown away. They're being assaulted. People are being freed from illnesses and, and, and diseases and demons. Why would Satan do that? If he did, Jesus' point is, he would be stirring up rebellion among his own ranks. And a kingdom in that way may win a few battles, but in the long run, it will destroy itself. They'll eat each other. So I'm not casting out demons by the prince of demons. He wouldn't do that. He's too smart for that. So the challengers are Jesus' own family and the teachers of the law. The challenge they face is whether or not Jesus is a prophet or whether he is a test. And the choices then before him are that things have gotten a little out of Jesus' control and he just doesn't realize what he's doing. Or he's being possessed by Satan himself as a test to lead Israel away from God. Or he truly is the work of God in the world, assaulting the forces of evil. And here's the consequence of how you make that decision for Jesus. How you come out on that question for Jesus couldn't be more important. This is what he says. I tell you the truth, this is verse 28. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven He's guilty of an eternal sin. What is this unforgivable sin? And this is what it appears to be in this context. The failure to believe that God was at work in Jesus. The failure to believe that God was at work in Jesus. The declaration that Jesus did not represent the work of the one and only God in the world is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We know, if we've been reading Mark, that Jesus is not indwelt by an evil spirit. We saw at his baptism that the heavens were ripped open and that the Spirit of God came out as a dove. And in the Gospel of Mark, it's unique in this language, it says that the Spirit went into Jesus. Do you remember? If Jesus is possessed by anyone, 
He's possessed by the Holy Spirit of God, if you want to use that language. But Jesus' rivals rejected that claim. And so they associated Jesus, his ministry, his behavior, his teachings with another source. This wasn't God at work in the world. This is the prince of demons or a bit of human lunacy or whatever else. And Jesus says that those who deny who he is and where the source of his ministry is have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That denial will be the only sin that will condemn us. And that sin will never be forgiven. Now that doesn't mean if you've done it once, I don't think, based on the way I read the rest of the scriptures, that you're done for. It has to do with that state. The truth is there is no Christianity if Jesus was not filled with the Holy Spirit of God. If Jesus, as the church later came to articulate it, was not God in the flesh. There is no Christianity. Whatever religion might result from a denial of those claims would not be the religion of the prophets and apostles. It would be some false new religion. Let me flesh it out. If you were of the sort who would say Jesus is a fine teacher, a good ethical teacher, but that's as far as Jesus goes, that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you're one who would say Jesus is one of the greatest philosophers ever to have lived, if we were to look at morality, no one achieved morality better and more completely than Jesus. So he is our guide to the moral life because no one embodied the truth of right and wrong better than the historical Jesus. And that's as far as Jesus goes. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit according to the apostles. All sins and blasphemies will be forgiven humanity except that one. Jesus is the work of God in the world. And of course, that conviction that he is that spills out into our behavior in other parts of our life. And in many ways, our lives bear witness to whether we really believe that or not. And that gets to be a complicated conversation. But in the end, it's this sin that is the only one that stands between us and eternal life. Jesus demanded loyalty to himself, akin to the loyalty Israel was to show to the law of Moses and to God. So for Jesus, what Deuteronomy said is, no one is allowed to lead you away from faithfulness to God. The confusion of the teachers of the law is that they thought faithfulness to God and the law of Moses were the same thing. But Jesus reveals to them it's not. Loyalty to God, because Jesus is authoring a new covenant, because the covenant of Sinai had been broken, is going to require Loyalty to the same God, but in different ways. His, his, the the, the teacher of the law didn't get that. The question the law of Moses was to question God himself, and therefore Jesus must have been a test. And so they did exactly what Deuteronomy told them to do. They looked for a way to kill him. But Jesus argued that his miracles and his freeing of people from spiritual forces of evil should be evidence of the claim that he was working for God, with God, in the end we'll find out was God. But they could not see it. And of course, casting out demons and healing the sick and all that didn't essentially establish Jesus' claim. There's only one thing that did. Only one thing that settled the issue for his apostles where they finally recognized the truth of what he claimed about himself. And it was when God raised him from the dead.
Any loyalty higher than the loyalty we show to Jesus, even that of family, is idolatry in the new covenant. Any denial of that, Jesus suggested, would be seen as an unforgivable act of rebellion against the work of God in the world. Have you made a decision about Jesus and who he is?